0: Sunday morning, we gather as a church family to, to worship our Lord and Savior, to, to sit under the Word of God, to humbly submit to what we read, so uh, may God be glorified through this entire time today. Uh, let's, let's begin in prayer, and we are going to continue our study on the doctrines of Grace. As you heard last week, that'll be what we'll be studying throughout this summer, so, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this morning. Uh, you give us our every breath. We're dependent on you for all things, and so we just even thank you and praise you for life and breath and, and every good thing. And God, as a people of your own possession, we're, we're thankful to gather with other believers to, to worship you this day. Be glorified through what takes place here. I pray that we'd leave today equipped and encouraged. Uh, that we desire to make much of you in, in all of our lives, and I pray that you'd use our study this morning even to help spur us on in that. So we do love you and thank you and praise you for this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's begin with a quiz from, from last week. Let's see here. So, so we're talking about the doctrines of grace, and we we have that helpful uh, acrostic tulip that we're going to use uh, a a summary uh, of the doctrines of grace. So who coined Tulip? Was it uh, Arminius? Was it Calvin? Was it Luther? Was it none of the above? All right, 100% for everyone. So when we're talking about Tulip, this was, you know, a summary of these five points of what was articulated in the 17th century, at a particular event, anybody remember the name of this canon where, where people gathered to think carefully about God and his work of salvation? Anybody remember the name of the canon? Dort. Dort, right. Okay, so, so Tulip, really, the doctrines of Grace, this is a summary uh, of the Canons of Dort and and what was being responded to at the Canons of Dort? Anybody remember? Okay, so yeah, just a summary statement. You said uh, Arminianism, right? So, so you had this remonstrance. Okay, so the the culture, the the theology that was prevalent in the churches um, was it was informed by this Reformation truth of God's sovereignty and salvation, and during the Fifteenth and sixteenth century, there was this rising um, tide of those influenced by Jacob Arminian, Arminius. Uh, there was there was this um, counter, contrary doctrine that was going on, and it was gaining momentum. And so they were even appealing uh, in this remonstrance to for to uh, change up both. Um, the Heidelberg Confession and the Belgic Confession. They wanted the, the Armenian doctrine to be representative of, of what the churches believed. And so that's what this remonstrance was. Uh, why was it called the remonstrance? Anybody, anybody know? I certainly didn't. I appreciate R.C. Sproul in, in his humor. when He said, why was it called the remonstrance? He's like, well, it's because they were remonstrating. And I was like, oh yeah, okay. Well, that makes sense. And he's right. So, so um, you know, an, an argument against, like when you remonstrate. That's the first time I think I've ever used that word. Anybody familiar with the word remonstrate? I mean, it's an English word that we... Anyway, so the remonstrants, they were remonstrating against, you know, this uh, reformed understanding of salvation. And so the Canons of Dort, it's a response to the remonstrants. And then TULIP is just a later summary familiar uh, just acrostic to remember the doctrine that was represented at the canons of Dort. And so last week we began our study with just the question even of, of asking ourselves, why, why study what has been uh, a controversial doctrine? I mean, you even see back in uh, early 17th century very much conflict going on in the churches, and that has continued. You have these disagreements that go on between those who would, who would hold to more of a reform view uh, of God's sovereign work in, in salvation, and in our, an Arminian view that I think would be accurate to represent it as a view that sees, sees God and, and man cooperating together in in salvation. So, uh, so man is very much involved in saving himself, and so you have these two um, views coming into how how God saves sinners and it's continued to today, it's a, it can be a very controversial thing. So the question was asked last week, why do we study then this controversial doctrine? Why do we study the doctrines of grace? And, and some, of the, some of the statements that were made last week just remind us, because we want to know what the Bible says. We want to know why it says it. And so we, we are convinced that the Bible teaches what, what we're teaching about the doctrines of grace. And so we want to be careful to know, what the Bible says and why it says it, we want to think rightly, particularly about God and the work of God. we want to think carefully um, we want to have a right view of, of god's glory in, in salvation, to think that that he, he saves sinners. just what a what a wonderful reality to, to come to grips with so so it is so great a salvation that we want to understand how God why God saves and how he saves and so we were kind of reminded of that last week. And so our motivation is not to do what I probably did pretty early on in, in becoming convinced of the doctrines of grace. It's not to grind somebody's face into the ground and say like, see it, it's everywhere, isn't it glorious? You know, like type of mentality about the doctrines of grace. You know, we're not trying just to, to, to show that we're right and somebody else is wrong and, and to... to um, force them to see the, the, the glories of, of God's work of salvation. It's more to just to be biblical and, and to, to know what the Scripture says and to um, be able to define it and to be able to defend it. And so hopefully this study will, will help in, in that aim as we go through. So I actually t- would like to begin with a little bit of introductory thoughts. Uh, We are going to move specifically into the the first uh, letter T in in TULIP today. So we'll be looking at total depravity. But I did want to just give a few introductory thoughts just in regards to the the study as a whole. Um, We have these five points when we talk about TULIP. But even Packer, um, J.I. Packer, you'll notice like panic in my voice for a second. This was my bookmark, and this is the book. And so... So I'm like, oh yeah. Um, he it, okay. So there was there's this this, this essay that J.I. Packer wrote that he's really summarizing the doctrines of grace, and he really gets to the one point really of, of the doctrines of grace. And if we have the, these five points we talk about tulip, uh, he summarizes those five points with with one point. So if we're gonna summarize the doctrines of grace, uh, Packer does it with with these three words. He says. God saves sinners. And and let me just read from, from his essay on this point. There is really only one point to be made in the field of soteriology. So that's kind of the doctrine of salvation. There's really only one point to be made in this field. And here's the point. God saves sinners. God, the triune Jehovah, Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, working together in sovereign wisdom, power, and love to achieve the salvation of a chosen people. The Father electing, the Son fulfilling the Father's will by redeeming, the Spirit executing the purpose of Father and Son by renewing. Lengthy quote here that we're not done with yet, but what he say? so God saves sinners, and he begins by saying, so, so God, our triune God, uh, the Father elects, the Son fulfills, the Spirit executes. You know, God saves sinners, uh, the second point, saves. Packer's saying God saves. God does everything. God saves, first to last, uh, that is involved in bringing man from death and sin to life in glory. He plans, he achieves, he communicates redemption, he calls, he keeps, he justifies, he sanctifies, he glorifies. God saves, what Packer's saying. and Who does God save? Sinners. Sinners, men as God finds them, guilty, vile, helpless, powerless, blind, unable to lift a finger to do God's will or better their spiritual lot. So he's referring to the condition of man when when Packer's defining God saves sinners, these guilty, vile sinners. Um, And the force of this confession may not be weakened, by disrupting the unity of the tr- work of the Trinity, or by dividing the achievement of salvation between God and man, and making the decisive part man's own, or by soft peddling the sinner's inability, so as to allow him to share the praise of his salvation with his Savior. Again, I recognize I have the quote in front of me, and it's kind of lengthy, but I hope you're following what he's saying when, when he's he summarizes. If God is the one who does the saving, it's God alone, from first to last. Uh, and and he, he does it as this one agent of salvation. It's it's not to be disrupted by by um, adding somebody else into the equation of who saves, who's involved in salvation. No, it's God alone who saves, and it's not to be downplayed by by diminishing the condition of of man or soft peddling the condition of man to say that 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 he actually is not unable that they, that he there's no inability. They're saying God or that man actually can respond rightly apart from God's salvation. No, he's saying God saves sinners. It's God who does it all. So here's what he says in the end. Sinners do not save themselves in any sense at all, but that salvation first and last, whole and entire, past, present, and future, is of the Lord, to whom be glory forever. Amen. So these five points, this tulip, the doctrines of grace could even be summarized by saying just God saves sinners. And I find that to be helpful. Also, to just preliminary thought here as well, if we're going to begin with total depravity, maybe one of the accusations that is made against those who would adhere to the doctrines of grace is you pretty negative people. I mean, you start out pretty negative and it's just kind of like, boom, negative, uh, really gloomy outlook about man. But it's even Helpful to know that in the canons of Dort, just remember, they're responding to the remonstrants, uh, those remonstrators. And um, Tulip is a summary of the canons of Dort. But realize, here's where the canons of Dort begin on, on man. Man was originally formed after the image of God. His understanding was adorned with a true and saving knowledge of his creator and of spiritual things. His heart and will were upright, all his affections pure, and the whole man was holy. And then the canons of Dort go on to begin to speak of the corruption that enters in with original sin as Adam fell, and all mankind fell in Adam, and, and thus we are, are totally corrupted. Uh, and so that's where the canons of Dort begin on, on that point in, the, in their response. So so. There is this accurate view of man. It's not just some um, only you know, gloomy outlook. It, we have this right understanding that when God created man, everything that God created was good. And so when he created man, man was able not to sin. And, and then when Adam fell uh, and all mankind fell in Adam, as we'll look at in Romans 5, our, our nature has changed. We are now, we sin because we're sinners And so all we do is sin. So we are now not able not to sin. Like all we do is sin. That's our condition uh, in Adam. And so that's what we're referring to when we talk about total depravity. So you'll notice though, like I don't even have that as as our our term. Radical depravity is, is what I have down here. And so that really kind of ruins our acrostic, doesn't it? You know, if you're playing Wordle, you know, we're kind of moving backwards here. We actually started with a legitimate word, and then now we have Rulip. And, and you know, like, Wordle will not accept Rulip, because it's not a real word. And it's going to get worse than that, because we're going to switch the order around, and by the end, I mean, you're just not even going to recognize, like, any uh, of the letters in, in TULIP. But I do think TULIP is helpful as this, this reminder, but, uh, but it, at the expense of, of, of spelling out this beautiful flower, uh, some of the words might give impressions that, that we don't intend to give. And so, so even I think total depravity, we'll see, is still helpful, but it almost needs some qualifiers. And, and so I don't even presume to suggest that radical depravity doesn't need qualifiers as well. But I think as we move through today, you'll kind of see how, how radical might speak to the, the radical effects of sin. Because when you talk total depravity— what what is the assumption that is made if somebody says that mankind is totally depraved? What might be communicated in that word totally that's not actually accurate? That's right. So benevolent acts that, that are not um, that are not even what well, we'll get there. So so what it what total almost communicates is that all of us are as bad as we possibly could be. we, we are we're at, we are totally bad, like we're as bad as we could possibly be. And that's not what we're going to be talking about as we, as we discuss radical depravity. So you have four attempts at a definition real quick. The primary focus this morning needs to be, is, is this biblical? So we need to get into the scriptures. We want to walk through what the scriptures have to say about our radical depravity. But, but it's helpful to define. If we're going to defend it, let's, let's begin by defining it. So we'll define and defend this morning radical depravity. And I'm beginning with more... Um, contemporary definitions here is we, that David Steele and then John Piper and then the Westminster one, you know, now we're moving back a couple centuries, and then, and then Canons of Dort would be the oldest one I have in front of us here. But what are we talking about when we talk about radical depravity? Uh, David Steele, in, in his book on Tulip, he said, the whole of our being has been affected by sin. So you, you hear that radical nature of, of sin, that, that all of our being has been affected by sin. There's not an ounce of us, there's not any part of us that has not been affected by sin. Piper, uh, John Piper writes, Man's natural condition, apart from any grace exerted by God, to restrain or transform man. So, so radical depravity referring to our natural condition, um, what, what sin has, how sin has affected us. Okay, here, now we start getting... A little bit longer definitions here. Westminster, the Westminster Confession says, "Man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from God, from good, and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself." Or to prepare himself thereunto. So the effects of sin on all mankind are thus that, that we can do nothing good, and we certainly can do nothing. We are not able, we don't have the strength to, the ability to convert ourselves. Uh, we can't even prepare ourselves for, for such activity. All right, and then the canons of Dort, again, what what the tea in tulip is after. Actually summarizing from the Canons of Dort is is this point uh, number three in, in the Canons of Dort where it says, Therefore all men are conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, and in bondage thereto. And without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they are neither able nor willing to return to God to reform the depravity of their nature or dispose themselves to reformation. So, I do think both in, the, in John Piper's quote and in this, the Canons of Dort, we are reminded of the work of God in salvation where, where Piper says, apart from any grace exerted by God in the life of a believer, and, and the Canons of Dort say, uh, without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they are neither able nor willing to return to God. So even in our own statement of faith as a church, like when you, when you read through the, the, um, what we believe about man, it ends kind of like, oh, because it says that we are neither willing or able to, to repent. And so then we move into the doctrine of salvation where we say, but God um, saves sinners. So, so those four definitions, you, just, you have them in front of you. you. don't have to memorize them certainly, but uh, you, know, you can just have them as a reference to kind of think through what is it that we're talking about when we're talking about what some would say total depravity, uh, others radical depravity. Uh, R.C. Sproul calls it radical corruption because what are the initials for radical corruption? Yeah. And so then he just feels like that's pretty helpful, or he, he felt like that was a helpful um, thing for his church to be mindful of. So radical corruption, R.C. Um, but we're going to use radical depravity. Uh, and so there there's four definitions are hopefully helpful, and we want to think carefully as we walk through these scriptures today. The more important question here is, is this biblical? Um, our, our first point uh, under this, this title, and I guess you have blanks in front of you, uh, hopefully you have a, a pen or just a really good memory, but uh, we all are sinners. So as we walk through those verses here in just a couple minutes, we'll see we all are sinners. But, but I'm realizing uh, that I skipped over something I really wanted to point out as we begin. If we're going to say that, that radical depravity is not that we are just as bad as we could be, but it's that all every area of our lives, all of us, we have been totally, radically affected by sin. We, we want to be careful to acknowledge that. So, so here's, a, here's a quote from... Uh, one of the books I was reading by David Steele and Curtis Thomas. says, Total does not mean that each sinner is as totally or completely corrupt in his actions and thought as it is possible for him to be. Instead, the word total is used to indicate that the whole of man's being has been affected by sin. The corruption extends to every part of man, his body, his soul, his mind, his will. So, Every area of our lives is affected by sin. I mean, think about this. It would be kind of obvious. If everyone was as bad as they could be, we would not be here today. Why would that be? Yeah, yeah, you would be dead. You you would have been murdered. Um, Yes, so we wouldn't be here today. I mean, even, I'm really having some issues here with the mic, but even think of in your mind... The worst from, from history, just think of the most despicable of, of, of men. Someone who did wicked things, caused tremendous amount of suffering by producing tremendous amount of evil. I mean, just put whatever name you want in your mind of, of who that would be and realize they could have been worse than they are. I mean, there's probably a time where they walked past someone and they didn't like kick them right you know they they just you know they, they could have done one more thing that would have been worse and they could have done many more things that would have been worse so even the most wicked of men the the most evil person you can allow to enter into your mind you realize they're not even as wicked and evil as as they ultimately could have been and it is absolutely right to say that common grace is very much explanation for that. Let's look at just a, a verse to, to remind ourselves that we're not all as bad as we could be. Um, Jesus teaching in Luke chapter 11. Luke eleven 13, We're reminded that we're evil. Verse 13 says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So even, not the main point of this, this passage, but you're even just seeing this reality that even Jesus would acknowledge someone, someone who's even evil, still, as, as a father, even if you're not in a right relationship with God and, and in your, your love for your children, you know, if they ask for food, you're not going to play some trick on them and give them something that is not food. You know, we're, we, we, do, we do benevolent things. Uh, parents for their, their children, um, you know, mankind for, for others. Uh, you, you see benevolence all over the place, right? Uh, think even of what uh, what depraved men are capable of. I mean, even Jesus would speak of of the very religious who are not in a right relationship with God, who are at enmity with God. Uh, that These very religious people gave. They, were, they, they tithed. They prayed. They... Um, they fasted. They were very, there, there were many who were very religious, others who were very philanthropic. Uh, we're not as, all as bad as we could be, but we are all radically depraved. All mankind are, are sinners, and we are affected by sin. Um, and it is, that is bad news. And so we want to think carefully about all of the doctrine of salvation so we can get to the good news but at the same time that there, we're not all as bad as we could be, we certainly uh, can do nothing uh, that is good in, um, in regards to, to God. Think of Romans 14.23. Romans 14.23 reminds us of this. Uh, Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith, is sin. So even these things that we just acknowledged when we're saying, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, even these things that we acknowledge like an evil person who walks by somebody and, and resists kicking him, or a parent who feeds their hungry child, or a wealthy man who, who gives uh, to hurricane relief. On and on we could go with these, these benevolent acts, these good things that show that no one's as bad as they could be. It, when those things are not done in faith, Romans 14, 23 tells us it's sin because we sin because we're sinners, because we're not able not to sin. Uh, We are in a very desperate condition in light of the radical effects of sin on all of mankind. And so that's what we're talking about now as we get into these these verses regarding is is radical depravity biblical? The first point, we all are sinners. Everybody turn to Romans chapter 3. Just' walk through several places all, all here in chapter three, just referring to this universal reality that, that all are sinners. There, there's, there is a total there's a helpfulness, even to the word "total here, when we're saying all our sinners, everyone, everywhere, for all time, all are sinners. Romans three: nine through11. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So you go, everyone, everywhere, under sin. Verse 9, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Later, uh, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And then a verse that we all know so well, verse 23, for all have sinned And fall short of the glory of God." So we're all sinners, and the scriptures attest to this throughout. It's not just Romans 3. Let's look at two passages even from Solomon, 1 Kings 8. I was thinking of this even the other day as turning to to 1 Kings 8. On a number of occasions, uh, occasions in the last couple months, I Cross-references to 1 Kings have come up. Been, we've been doing a study on the attributes of God uh, with uh, the youth. And then here we're talking about radical depravity, and 1 Kings 8 comes up. I mean, this, this prayer that Solomon prays, the dedication of the temple, has such a high view of God. There's so much we learn about God, or uh, reminded of about God as you read through this prayer. And then there's, there's certainly a lot we learn about man, or are reminded about in the condition of man from this prayer of Solomon. So maybe you'd like to sit down and think through First uh, Kings 8 uh, later, but First Kings 8:46 just says, "If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin." Uh, so just kind of this, this statement in the, in the midst of, of this uh, occasion, or this prayer of dedication for the temple, and then Solomon's just acknowledging, "All of us have sinned. Uh, if they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin." Kings 8:46 says, and then and then go over to Proverbs chapter 20 verse 9. Proverbs 20 verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. That the answer to this, this question is, No one, no one can say this. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? No one can. Who can say, I am clean from my sin? No one can because no one is, is um, able to do that because everyone has sinned. So we all are sinners. Uh, let's, get, let's keep moving through, we'll go to this, this second point here. So we all are sinners and we're born this way. We all are born with a sin nature. I want to think very carefully upon this important passage in Romans chapter 5. <clears throat> We are born with a sin nature. Turn to Romans 5. Okay, so I'm not going to read all of these, these verses, but what you have here is you're recognizing both that this imputation of, of, of Adam's sin, and the, for those who are in Christ, this imputation of Christ's righteousness. And it keeps going back and forth that, that through the one man, sin through the one man righteousness. And so I'm not gonna focus as much on, on Christ's work and what Christ has accomplished in salvation, but as we walk through in, in these verses in, in twelve and following, just just note what what we see about our, our sin nature in, in Romans 5.12. Therefore, verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So sin came into the world through one man, Adam. And, and then and the consequences of that sin is death. And that consequence is for all men because death spread to all men. And the reason that death spreads to all men is because all sinned in, in Adam. So we're referring to this the original sin that, that, that um, we, we are, we are um, born sinners in light of Adam's sin. It has corrupted all mankind. So, verse 13, For sin indeed was in the world before the law. Well, I'll tell you, what, I'm just going to jump down to verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, uh, there you see consequence in verse 15, death because of one man's trespass. Verse 16 says, um, The free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass Brought condemnation. So so death is the consequence of sin, that one trespass brought condemnation upon all mankind. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Um, so eighteen, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. Uh, so condemnation of all men. Again, reminding you, we're not talking about just Adam's condemnation. Uh, this one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Uh, verse 19: For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, and so what Romans 5 is showing us is, is that this that we are born sinners. We are born in Adam. Adam fell, and and, and we all um, fall in. Him, we are, we are, we sin because we're sinners. We are born sinners because we were born with a sin nature. Uh, This is original sin. We we are, that is how we enter into the world. And so David would even recognize this uh, as he's thinking through the consequences of his own sin. Uh, Such a familiar passage to everybody, but in Psalm 51, he refers to this reality that we are born sinners. Uh, It is our very nature. We are all born with a sin nature. David says in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So, brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Verse Verse 3 of chapter 58, Psalm 58, 3, The wicked are estranged, from when, right? What, what's the event where we are? The womb. That's right. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And so, again, it's, just, it's helpful in our minds to, to realize what we're saying here when we talk about that, that we are born with this sin nature. We sin because we're sinners. So if you're even going back farther than the canons of Dort, Back even to the fourth century, the big debate that was going on between Augustine and Pelagius would have been on this very issue: Is it that we sin because we're sinners, or are we sinners because we sin? And you're thinking, ah, both sound like not too bad, right? But one is heresy, and one is orthodox. And, and so what Augustine was saying is, well, the reason we sin because we're sinners; it's because of our sin nature. We're born sinners. So, we're not able not to sin. But Pelagius would be saying, no, 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 no. We're born neutral. So, we're able to choose good or bad. And so, whether it's bad influences, whether it's your own flesh, uh, the desires that you fall for, uh, any, whatever Pelagius might argue for, he would say, we're sinners because we sin, would have been his point. And so, he, he's saying, you enter into the world neutral, and then all of us end up falling. We sin. Um, And so we're sinners because we ended up sinning. We're sinners because we sin. But Augustine was saying back in the fourth century, no, 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 no. We sin because we're sinners. And so these verses are reminding us of that reality here. In Romans 5, through the one man and this one sin, it corrupted all mankind. And so all have sinned. That's the first point. And all of us are born this way. We are born with a sin nature. Uh, just any comments or, or thoughts you have as we're as we're moving through those points. Yeah, Jim. So, yeah, yeah. We you know we're going to go um to Genesis in just a, a minute. In fact, that's going to be in the, our next point. But um, yeah. So. Let's look at that in a second. Pretty comprehensive statements that are made about the condition of man in their slavery and bondage to sin. Perhaps that's our segue, too. Are there, are there no comments after this? Let's go ahead and get into that then. This third point. Uh, if we're all sinners, and secondly, we, um, we're born this way, we're born with a sin nature, uh, the third point is we all are slaves of sin. John 8 34. Just to give you a little bit of a heads up towards the end of our study, after we walk through the tulip, we walk through the doctrines of grace, Charlie's going to think more carefully on the doctrines of grace specifically just in the gospel of John. So I don't want to like, I tried not to spend too much time in the gospel of John, but you can just be in the gospel of John to see all five, uh, to see the doctrines of grace on display. Uh, And so we'll spend some more time in, in that gospel later in the summer, but I am going to have to use, use Romans 8 here. Uh, let's just look at this reality that we all are slaves of sin. John eight 34, we're told this. John eight thirty four. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So if you think about that, if you might try and argue your way out of 34, you're like, oh, we're only talking about those who practice sin. And so then you think, okay, well, who is that? Who are we talking about? And so then you think, what what do the scriptures say? What we just have talked about, points one and point two. We all are sinners, and we all are are born this way. There's not some point in your life where that was different. Uh, We all are sinners, and we are born with a sin nature. And so we are slaves to sin. In fact, uh, even, well, go to to Titus, Titus chapter 3. We think of Titus three five and six. So often think of what was stated right prior to that uh, verse. Verse three: For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Uh, boy, we needed the goodness of God to enter in in loving kindness um, by saving us. Because look at verse three. When you think of we were slaves to sin, we hated one another. Um, they hate us. We hate them. I mean, hatred characterizes us. Slavery to various passions. Slavery to various pleasures. We're foolish. We're disobedient. We're led astray. I mean, that is, that is the slavery that we are in bondage to, and it's radically on display. It's it's pervasive. It affects everyone, and it has been the effect on all mankind for all time, like from birth, from the womb, as we looked at in those previous verses. So we're all sinners. We're all born with a sin nature, and we're all slaves of sin. And, and so it was interesting, Jim just mentioned the, these passages in, in Genesis when we think about the condition of man. It really, it really reflects or demonstrates for us what this slavery to sin lo- looks like. So think of Genesis 6-5. We're gonna look at Genesis six five and Genesis eight twenty one. Oh, good, they're on your handout. Yeah, good deal. Genesis six five, and, and then we'll look at Genesis eight twenty one. The Lord, verse five of chapter six. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's, that's our condition, right? Uh, every intention of the thoughts of our hearts, only evil and continually. Turn over to chapter 8 just to add weight to this reality. Um, mm, what am I looking for here? Because it's not verse 21. Am I not looking at chapter 8? No, oh, uh, end of 21. Okay. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So, so chapter 6, verse 5, we, we see, man, uh, pretty, pretty bad. Uh, this bondage to sin is evident in what is listed there. And it's just evil continually and it's from our youth. So John Murray, in reflecting on these two verses, he just kind of points out the, the intensity. Think of what's said between 6.5 and 8.21. The intensity of our bondage uh, in that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. You know, in 6.5, in all the land. So it's the intensity of our bondage is on display. The inwardness is on display with the imagination of the thoughts of our hearts. You know, it's, it's not even just our outward acts. It's, it's the intentions of our heart. So, intensity in that it's great. Inward, it's our hearts. Total, in these, these words, of every imagination, uh, every um, thought. It, constancy, even. He says it talks of this, this is what characterizes us continually. And then he's saying that this uh, bondage is exclusive, or this, this sin nature is it, the exclusiveness of it, is it, that all we think of is only evil. And. It manifests itself early, says Murray, when it reminds us that this is the case. This intensity, this inwardness, this totality, this exclusiveness, this constancy, all of it has this early manifestation that it happens from our youth. We are all sinners. We're born with this sin nature. And so we are thus slaves of sin because we are in fact not able, not to sin. Let me pause to get to, oh no, is that, okay, it pauses are not going to work out. Um, but so what about free will then here? If we're thinking of, doesn't God give us free will? And the reality here is if you think we're all sinners and we, we, sin be, um, we sin because we're sinners, we're all sinners, it's our nature, and so we're slaves to sin. We really are free in the sense that we do the very thing that we want to do. Um, we're free to do what we wish to do. Sinners want to sin. And so because we're slaves to sin, because it's our nature, that's what we do. Just as much as God is free in his nature, he is holy. He cannot lie. So God is, we would, all would recognize God is free. We're recognizing he cannot lie. He cannot do anything outside of his holy will. God can do all his holy will. Man, we are slaves to sin. It's our nature so we're free to do whatever we want. What we want to do is our nature, and our nature is that of sin. And so that's what, like, Luther would be arguing for in his book, The Bondage of the Will. We're all slaves to sin. That's all we know. It's all we can do. And so the reality here is then that we all are spiritually dead. That's that last one, number four here that you have in front of you. We all are spiritually dead. And so we ought to go to Ephesians 2 just to be reminded of this reality. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, verse 1, chapter 2, Ephesians, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So we are all dead in our sins, just like the rest of mankind. We are dead. We are spiritually dead. And so what the scriptures show us is that we are unable to do anything good. We are spiritually unable to understand God and the things of God, we're spiritually unable to respond rightly to the gospel. We're spiritually unable to change. So if you walk through those verses, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 shows us that the natural man doesn't understand. It's not like he doesn't understand God saves sinners. Like he could re-articulate those three words, but he doesn't agree with those three words. Words He doesn't think it's true, does not accept it as true because the natural man cannot accept it as true because it requires the work of the Spirit in the heart of the man. So we're unable to understand, 1 Corinthians 2 tells us. Uh, instead of turning to all these, let me just, for time's sake, just read, read these others. Out. We're unable to respond. We're spirit, because we're spiritually dead, we're spiritually unable to respond. Romans 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We cannot respond rightly. We're unable because of our nature. So even a thought experiment here, I was reading somebody who did something similar in this. Who's was saying, like, let's imagine that somebody came up to you and says, hey, I will give you $10 million if you will not talk for... Somebody just give me time. like What sounds hard? Uh, not talk for how long? Oh, wow. <laughs> That's thought experiment between men and women, right? Uh, yeah. And so I was thinking like a week or a day, maybe some, I, but uh, minutes even. Okay, don't talk for an entire week and I'll give you like a large sum of money. And you're thinking, man, that would be really difficult, but I can do it. And I'm going to do it because $10 million is worth it. That would be what's in the person's mind. So then if you go come up to them and say, here's the deal. I will give you $10 million if you don't think for one week. And you know, some people think that's easy. No, it's actually not because, like, uh, that—that's our nature is to think. So our, you know, we're we're unable to fulfill that that little uh, task. We we, it would be hard not to talk, but we really could do it. Um, it, You cannot do the, uh, the the second one because we are thinking. Beings, so we can't do something outside of our nature, and so we're we're unable to respond, is what Romans eight is saying, and I think it's the same way. Just as much as if you're if you were offered salvation, if you would stop sinning, you can't do it because it, or, or to if you are offered salvation, if you would just left to your own, just do something good to earn that salvation, you can't do it because it's outside your nature. Sinning is in your nature. We're hostile to God, says Romans 8. We're unable to respond rightly, is what Romans 8 says. Because we're all sinners, and we are all, it's our nature, and so we're slaves to sin, we are dead in sin. So because of that, we're unable to change. And we're just going to have to end here. The, um, Je- Jeremiah 13 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin, or the leopard his spots? The answer, no, no. They they can't change the color of their skin. A leopard can't change uh, his spots. And so Jeremiah replies. Then also you can th- then also you can do good who are accustomed to evil. Saying you can't change your nature. You can't just do good because you are accustomed to evil. Your nature is evil. Your nature is not good. So we are unable to change. We are corrupted in our minds. We're corrupted in our hearts. Uh, Jeremiah 17 reminds us our hearts have been corrupted. It's not just our outward acts that are corrupted; it's it's out of the overflow of our heart that produces these corrupt acts. So Jeremiah 17 says, "The heart is deceitful above all else, and desperately sick. Who can understand it?" So the point in all of this then is that that um, that sin has so corrupted all of mankind that we are unable to do anything good. And so so what a glorious reality it is then to move into these next four truths in this doctrines of grace to see that God saves sinners. Sinners who were dead in their sin, unable to respond to the gospel, um, enemies of God, guilty, vile, and helpless. And yet God saves sinners by opening their eyes and causing them to see and causing them to respond rightly to the gospel. So as we walk through these other points, we'll just be reminded of that. This informs so much of our lives, whether you think just, you know, our prayer lives, how we pray for others to, be, to come to know Christ. We pray for um, how we pursue evangelism. We can't just intellectually convince somebody into things. We have great arguments, but it's going to be a work of God that's going to open up somebody's eyes to see the truth. Same with parents. You know, informs like folly is bound up in the heart of the child. You know, we don't take it personally when our ch- children sin. It's their nature. So, what, what do we do? We 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 train them. We we show them that their sins separates them from God. We share the gospel with them. But anyway, I'm just saying, that total depravity informs our evangelism. It informs our prayer life. It informs our parenting, etc., etc., etc. Total depravity, radical depravity, also just reminds us, man, God gets all the glory in salvation because man contributed nothing. Man was dead. Man was um, dead in their sin, slaves to their sin, and God um, is the one who saves sinners. So I think this will continue to build on these truths as we move through in the coming weeks. Sorry for going a few minutes long. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this morning. I just pray that you be glorified as we consider these things, as we, as we go into this main service, to sing truth about you, to, to hear from your word, to pray together as a church family. God, I just pray that each week as we gather, it would be meaningful but more importantly, they would glorify you and we make much of you and we would leave here better worshipers of you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.